Let's turn from uh, Psalms, if you're still there, back to the book of Philippians. And uh, we did get out of chapter 1, verse 1 last time. Some some of you told me that didn't count, so uh, reading the verse doesn't count. So we will actually plow ahead this morning. Any questions on deacons uh, before we move on? Oh, no, I just, that's why it takes me long to get out of a verse, because I keep saying, any more? Anything on a review? Okay, elders and deacons, you guys are up to speed on that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And we'll try to at least take a good chunk out of that section this morning. Uh, First of all, we haven't talked about verse 2 yet, uh, other than read it last time. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That is um, what we might call an intentional introduction. If you read any of Paul's letters, Almost without exception, there's one or two variations, but he basically always opens uh, one of his letters with that greeting. And um, on the one hand, it's just that, it's a greeting. It's like saying, hello, how are you, how are you doing? On, another, on the other hand, um, if you read the various greetings in Scripture, um, it's clear that Paul wasn't just saying, hey, how's it going? Um, his greeting was, in fact, a reminder that, that two of the key elements of what it means to walk with Christ, grace and peace, um, are not just salutations. They are, in fact, daily realities that sustain and uphold the life of the believer. And, and he doesn't go on. He doesn't expand, obviously. But without those realities, we would have no relationship with Christ. Grace is, is, is the, uh, grace is the engine behind God's giving of Christ and giving of the gift of salvation. It's Grace is, is that disposition where God says, I'm going to give somebody who was completely unworthy of this, I'm going to give it to him anyway. Uh, he, he gives us good things that we don't deserve. That's the essence of the idea behind grace. And, and that's not just something that God occasionally does. Uh, the scripture would tell us that God in his character is gracious. Uh, that's who he is. He, he, he is not ungracious, he is gracious, which means he is, he is disposed to bless people with things that they don't deserve. That'll preach, won't it? <laughs> is that what we do? And then the second one is peace. Um, you know, the Bible presents two two sort of different types of peace. There's one that is objective and there's one that is subjective. Objective is the most important because objective peace is required because our sin breaks our relationship with God. The the relationship between God and sinners is one of hostility, one of judgment, one of eminent condemnation, 
Uh, it is one where God says, I cannot be in the presence of somebody who is in sin because he's too holy. He's too pure. And we know um, uh, what, what the gospel tells us in a number of passages, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5, that, that for those who are in Christ, what, what does God do? He, he reconciles us to himself through Christ. And, and the result of that reconciliation is what? It's peace. Yeah, peace would be in that context a, a relationship uh, that, that is good, a relationship where fellowship and friendship and, and understanding flow. It's a peaceful relationship. That, that's the most important aspect of peace. It's objective peace. And then there's this other idea of subjective peace. When we're going we're gonna to read a few uh, chapters later when Paul says in Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Okay, that peace, that, he's not saying there, you, you need peace with the God of the universe because your sin has alienated yourself from him. That, that's not the type of peace he's talking about there. That peace is what we might think of as a subjective or situational peace. Okay, now, now watch this. Since God is my friend now, since I am in his family, since that hostility has been removed, I have been declared righteous in him. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been forgiven. We've been justified. We've been adopted into his family. If all that is true, why do we worry? Why are we anxious? So in light of the objective peace that we have that is permanent, unchanging, done, it's in the books in heaven and it cannot be changed. In light of that, we can have day-to-day, situational, uh, moment-by-moment, subjective peace because we know all all those things are true about God and our relationship with him. So, so don't read this as just a greeting. It is just a greeting. It is just a salutation. But for Paul, it's, it's, it's an intentional about two of the most important elements of the gospel. That we have grace and we have peace. And, and notice, what, look, look at verse 2. Who do those things come from? Who do they come from? They come from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So, so, it's like, so it's like right from the beginning, he's saying, Christian, do you remember these things? And then it's his way of turning the eyes of the reader back to the Father and back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the initiator and giver of those things. Yes? We in the 21st century overlook this because we're very used to it, but God our Father was a new concept. It was. Not just God the Almighty. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and I, I mentioned it in praying this morning with our psalm. But um, yeah, yeah, the fatherhood of God—that uh, that we aren't just on good terms with Him, but but He says, um, you know, you, you picture maybe some of you that been overseas and you've seen you've seen what happens to unwanted babies, and you see God the Father looking into the the orphanage to the the neonatal unit of unwanted babies, and He says, "I want that one." And he adopts them in. That's what he does for us. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now right out of the gate, um, Paul's in prison. He's been there for a while. Uh, things are not going uh, swimmingly, we might say. Uh, he's on, he was on a missionary journey. He showed up in Jerusalem. Uh, that turned into him being uh, tried and taken into custody amongst the Roman officials. A couple of changes of 
leadership there later, a long time there. He appeals to Caesar, finds himself on a boat and uh, on his way to Rome. He's shipwrecked on the way, but he finally gets there. Now he finds himself under house arrest in Rome. And yet this is the first thing he says. Look at verse 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. He's not thinking about his situation, is he? He's not complaining. He's not. In fact, one of the challenges, um, j- just look with me, okay? I thank my God, verse 3, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer from you all. Okay, Thankfulness is all over this place. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until... Uh, the day of Christ, um, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, Look down uh, a little more. He says, um, verse 18, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And then you read again in chapter 2. He says, rejoice. And he thanks God. Then you see in chapter 3, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the things again is no trouble for me. Um, he gets down a little bit further in chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Um, you read this letter, and it's full of joy. It's full of thanksgiving. It's full of praise. Um, I thought about doing a message from Philippians called Admonitions to the Grumbling Christian. Right? Because just by example, this book convicts the complaining, grumbling uh, Eeyoreism that so many Christians manifest. Moe is me. What am I gonna do, Pooh? Right? It just that right? Does that not characterize all of us, at least at some point? He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Well let's let's take that apart a little bit, shall we? <clears throat> First of all, um, let's ask a couple of questions here. What does participation in the gospel mean? What does participation in the gospel mean? Partnership. Partnership. Okay, that's a good word. What else? It's an active sense. Okay, it's it's not just kind of a casual passive, but it's something they were involved in and actively. Very good. Okay. Anybody know what the word is there? I will, I will say the word, and you will know. This is like one of the 12 Greek words that all Christians know. Um, do you know what it is? Koinonia. It's koinonia. Yeah, uh, koina would be the, um, or koino would be the verb. Yeah, but koinonia. You guys know koinonia? Uh, what, do we, what is koinonia typically translated as? Do you know? Fellowship, Fellowship sure. And, uh, oops, I'm doing it again. I'm sorry. Koino... You know, so, it, Greek and English, there's enough common characters. I'll just start writing it in English and it'll turn into Greek. But yeah, those are ends, not noons. Um, koinonia. Um, and, and 
I, I thought it would be good because I think koinonia is, is one of those terms. It's like forgiveness. It's in every Christian's vocabulary, but very few Christians know what it means. Um, now, I trust you guys are advanced students, so this is going to be a review for you. But, but let's, just, let's just think together. What, what is this koinonia? What is this fellowship? What is this participation? Because this is the heart of his thankfulness, the heart of his prayer, is that these guys have participated with him. And so we want to know, what, what does that mean? What is he talking about when he says participation? Okay. Now, now we know a little bit of uh, what this participation, what this fellowship is about, because he says in verse 5, it's participation in the gospel. Okay, we see that there. And then if you look down at the end of verse 7, he says, you all, you all are partakers of grace with me. Okay, do you see that there? That, that kind of helps us to know what is... What's, what does the fellowship revolve around? What is the participation really about? So, so think of it like this. If, if, if the common tie that binds Paul to the Philippians is Christ or the gospel or grace, and, and the text uses all three of those at some point, okay, that, that's the hub, that, that's the center of koinonia. See, in, in order to have koinonia, you have to have something in common. Uh, koinonia literally means um, something like to share in something with someone else. To share in something with someone else. So, so there has to be something that's in common, right? So, so watch this. Watch how this works. Okay? Because Paul and the Philippians are, are bound together in Christ. Because they have both come to Christ, they're, they're both believers, and the gospel is obviously the message that, that allows that uh, relationship to happen, and it is the gospel of grace. So really, these, in a sense, function all as synonyms. What that means, because they're bound together, is that they have they have two two elements that really koinonia uh, implies. One is that there is a relationship that comes because of that. Koinonia means if you share in this together, you have a relationship now. And, and when we get together and when we hang out, um, we know that, right? We're not getting together just to get together. We're getting together because we have the most important thing in the universe in common with one another. And what that means is it, it drives us together in relationship. Some of you have gone on mission trips. Maybe you've been to conferences. Maybe you're visiting family or relatives and you show up in another church and they find out that you're a believer, right? And what happens? There's an instant relationship. Maybe not as deep as, as folks who have walked together for years, but there's an initial bond, isn't there? Have you ever had that experience? And it's like a total stranger will say, welcome, come in, participate, come eat with us. And it's like, what is that all about? It's a relationship that comes because we share Christ, right? Well, there's another element, not just relationship. That's the one idea underneath koinonia that, that we share. The other idea is participation. Okay, see, koinonia has these two ideas under it. it. People share something with someone else. And when that happens, that creates a relationship and it, it creates participation. 
Or, or we might say partnership. That, that might even be even, even a little stronger there. A partnership. It sounds a little more business-oriented, but you think about it. Christ allows us to have a relationship, but what else does it do? We've got, we've got a job to do, don't we? There, there are things that God calls us as a church to engage in it, and we partner with one another to do that. We, we can't reach the world for Christ by ourselves. We, we partner with other believers. We partner with one another here. We, we partner with, with believers in Cambodia or Papua New Guinea. We partner with believers in Costa Rica, right? We, we partner with others because koinonia, because we're bound together in Christ, means we have a relationship, and it also brings about a partnership. And throughout the book of Philippians, and we'll look at a couple of these now, and then uh, we'll probably see more along the way, there are a number of elements now that, that, that flesh out of this sort of central common uh, bond in Christ. One of those things is worship. Right? We worship together because we have fellowship, because we have a relationship with Christ together. We also serve together, don't we? kind of getting alongside that particip- participation partnership idea. We, we serve with one another. Uh, we're involved in the proclaiming of the gospel together, aren't we? Uh, we are involved as well in giving for the gospel. We'll, we'll see this in a minute. Uh, actually, let's look at it right now as long as we're talking about it. Flip over to chapter 4. One of the things that stood out to Paul as he thought about the Philippians is that not only did the Philippians support him financially from the very first day, but there were times in his ministry when, the, when so to speak, the only check in the mail that arrived to Paul was from the Philippians. Uh, look at uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 15. He says, And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Okay, so, and he goes on to talk about that. So, so when he says, you all are partakers of grace with me, I, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my any, every prayer for you all in view of your participation with the gospel. He has all these things in mind. He says, hey, you know what? We've worshipped together. We serve together. We're, we're partners in proclaiming the gospel together. You guys have given so that I can do gospel work. And you know what else he's going to share? We share in suffering. We share in suffering. You know, um, the church in America is, is not persecuted. But we share fellowship and participation and relationship with churches in Asia, to some extent churches in Europe, and churches in other parts of the world that are persecuted. And, and Paul's going to say a number of times in Philippians and in his other letters, don't be afraid to share in suffering. Because uh, a sharing of the suffering of the gospel is one of the things that binds us together. It may not happen to all of us in the same way, but there's a common participation uh, of that. Okay, so so all of this, all of this is so to speak. This is all sort of uh, shared, if you will. 
because of the relationship, because of the partnership and participation, we share all of these things together as part of our union with Christ, what, what, what pulls us all together. Um, that's koinonia. Okay, does that make sense? You see, do you see how when when we're like we're gonna fire up the grill and have some fellowship? I mean, yeah, yeah, I know that's okay, but but you see how fellowship is much broader than that. Okay, there's so much more implied in the word, and and, and we can have burgers and hang out, and, and that can be fellowship. But but you see that that's that's one small little part of of it's Christ, it's it's that centrality of the gospel that binds us together, and he says. When I think of you guys, Philippians, I thank my God. And I pray with joy in all my prayers. Why? Why? Because we have this. You see that? And, and because we have this, we also have all this other stuff. Um, this just popped into my head, but... Um, do we need some fellowship adjustment? Do we need to tweak the gears of our, our fellowship circuit so that when we get together, we are more mindful of what that's supposed to look like? I think, I think, because I read this and I'm convicted, I think that if we really understood that this is what binds us together, we would be much more active and we would be a lot more thankful for all these other things. Do you agree? That's koinonia. Yes? Um, just kind of in relationship yeah. to this and then what you previously said about uh, the American mm-hmm. mindset, the yeah. Christian mindset. Uh, joy, we tend to, and I think I'm guilty as much as anybody else, we tend to think of joy as when we get bonuses Blessings and uh, all this good stuff, you right. know, kind of like Joel Olstein kind of blessings, and then, and then we can be joyful. Right. And even when we pray for those who are in suffering, we, we our, our tendency is to think, "Oh, poor them." There's, there's such a, t- and it is a terrible thing. But I mean, maybe we should start looking at the joy that's even there in their suffering and what can be accomplished through that. I yeah. know I'm going a little bit um, philosophical. Well, it's not philosophical at all. In fact, I think you're reading ahead because look what he says in in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, see there's there's more of that that suffering element of fellowship, that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. That that would be, um, you know, official Roman bodyguards, okay? So, so my imprisonment has become well known throughout these, this, this bodyguard, uh, group and everyone else. Verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So he says, because I'm, I'm here and I'm suffering here, that's bringing confidence to other believers to be faithful to preach the gospel also. He says, verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ from envy and strife, right? They're saying, well, I'm going to do it better than Paul. And so they get out there and they're doing it for the wrong motive. But some also from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress. 
So what does he say? Verse 18, well, they're preaching Christ either way, and I can be happy about that. And um, my first series, the first book I ever went through um, in a church, I was interning in a church in Alaska, and I, I preached the book of preached. Uh, I probably didn't know how to preach back in those days. But anyway, um, you know, worked through, uh, stumbled my way through uh, Philippians. And the title of the study was called Developing a Divine Perspective. And uh, maybe, maybe I'll end up titling this the same thing because I'm compelled that this man thought so differently than most of us think. And the way he thought... I think, is the way God looks at the world. It's a divine perspective. He says, you know what? I'm in prison. People are coming to Christ. The whole Roman cohort is hearing about the gospel because of me. Uh, Christians are be strengthened because of me to preach the gospel. Some of them have bad motives, but you know what? I don't care because the gospel is going forth in Rome. And I'm pretty happy about that, he says. So, yes, Rich, I, I agree with you. That's exactly uh, what he's saying. For I, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What, what, so, so participation in the gospel is really talking about we have this common bond of fellowship. We have this common bond around Christ. But what, what does it mean there from the first day until now? What does that mean? Do you remember back to the, the, our first time together? I told you how this church got started. Paul comes flying through Philippi, and he goes, there's no temple here. There's no synagogue here. There's no place of worship. Man, you know, and he wanders down by the river, and he finds these ladies that are having a little prayer meeting down there, like three or four, or I don't know how many, godly ladies. And, and he, he spoke to them. They, they developed a relationship, and out of that came the Philippian church. And Paul says, you guys were there from the beginning. From the first day that I showed up, God began to work in the city of Philippi. And you guys became supportive in me financially through prayers, through participation in the gospel, worship, suffering, all those things. Um, They were with Paul from that first day. Verse 6, one of the most, I think, popular verses in the church today. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who... Actually, let's do this first. Before I do that, um, I sort of did this, but I didn't put the, the question up there. What characterized his prayers? Just I've already summarized that, but what characterized his prayers as we have just unpacked it there? Thankfulness and joy and praise. Because his circumstances... Because Joel Osteen says, if I, if I send in my... You know, Joel's not preaching this sermon Sunday. You know, he's not preaching this sermon today. It's a different sermon, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not the blessings of I have stuff, I got my way. What, what is driving his, his thankfulness, his joy? What's driving it here? His faith in Christ? The gospel is being spread. And as he, as he thinks about, well, let me just ask this. When you think about other Christians, do you think about this? He says, the first thing that pops into my mind, when I remember you, that's what he says, right? When I remember you, I thank God because of this. 
you know, when we think of the, the brothers in Cambodia that are studying for the ministry, the pastors there, we, we are connected to them because of Christ and the gospel of grace. Right? When we think of the folks translating with David in, in Papua New Guinea, when we think of Doni and Norma in Costa Rica, when we think of Yumila Morales down in Guatemala, when we think of Dean Collar who goes all over the place, and it's all these believers... When we think of other Christians, is the first thing that pops into our mind is I am I am permanently joined to those brothers and sisters because we both know Christ. That's it. That challenge your prayer life. What characterizes his prayer is thanksgiving and praise and joy, not a laundry list of God give me these things. Now, there's a time for that. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but that certainly was not first on Paul's list. All right. Now, verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How many know, know that verse? Memorize that verse? Love that verse? What does it mean? I'm glad you asked. First of all, we need to kind of unpack it here. What is, what is the good work? What is the good work? Okay, making you more Christ-like. Okay, good thought. Sanctification, Sanctification all right. Bring you to salvation. Bring you to salvation. Okay, someone else? Let's not forget the context. Okay. I did all that work. Right? I did all that work so you guys can see it. This is what starts the good work. The gospel is what the, the the good work is. You came to Christ. You you came to the gospel. You enjoy that gospel of grace, and now that binds you together with this partnership, this relationship, this koinonia fellowship. And Paul says, "You know what? Not only am I excited about that, but I am confident that that good work, when you first came to Christ, when you first embraced the gospel, and, and your life began to change." that God's going to finish that work. Um, hold your place uh, and flip back to Romans chapter 8 because Paul expands on this in Romans 8 and I, and I think uh, I need to show it to you um, so you see it. What's the good work? And then the second question we really have to answer is what does he mean by perfect it until the day? Uh, can I get someone to read nice and loud Romans chapter 8? Start at verse 28 and read down to verse 30, please. 28 to 30. Who would like to read that nice and loud? We're in the sanctuary, so you have to put on your, your projecting voice here. Romans 8, 28 to 30. David, go ahead, bud. To 30, please, through 30. Thank you, sir. Now, you understand that, that jumping into Romans 8 is like fast-forwarding through the movie till, till the climax, to the, the last final battle scene, you know what I'm talking about? Because this is the pinnacle of the book right here. 
And he says, I want you to know um, that salvation is comprehensive. Um, and, and maybe you don't think about it in this terms, but, but let, me, let me, in order to understand what, what is the good work, I want you to think about it in, in four elements, okay? That's why I left you a lot of white space on your notes. There is what we might call pre-salvation. There is conversion. There is our life now, or we might say our current life. And then there is um, what we might call death or Christ returns. Okay. And assuming we have a room full of believers here, we can think about our life in those four areas. Okay. There was who we were before Christ. There was a moment when God called us to himself, when we first trusted Christ for salvation. That's called conversion. There's our current life now. That's sort of where we are right now. We're living for Christ as believers. And then there in the future is either our death or Christ returns. Okay, So we kind of break, break life down in those four areas. Now I want you to notice in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called. If we think about that, those are all elements of pre-salvation. God foreknew all believers. He, in fact, predestined them for salvation. And that led to what theologians call an effectual call. Um, the call, when, when theologians talk about the effectual call, they're not talking about the first time a person heard the gospel. The effectual call is, is, so to speak, the call from heaven where God reaches down and a sinner embraces that call by trusting, by faith alone. The, the call is what immediately is followed by trusting in Christ. And those are all elements of pre-salvation. Okay, those are things that God does to prepare us for coming to Christ. Okay, now we're not going to talk about foreknowledge and predestination and call. I'm just waving our hands as we drive by in the bus today. But those are things that happen in pre-salvation. Okay. Look at the next part. Don't see who he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified. Where's justify go up here? Conversion, justified. Someone tell me what justified means. Okay, to make right, that's good. That would be a a broad, general sense. When when thinking of it in terms of salvation, what what does justification mean? It's actually a very technical term. And, And you're right, but it's even more narrow than that. Yeah. Okay, to be in right standing before God, that's good. Getting closer. Being declared righteous, okay, so that what? We're declared righteous and thus not guilty because of Christ's atoning work. Very good. Uh, Justification is that great legal term. It's a legal term. We'd find it in lawyer books in in this, this day and age. 
It's that great legal declaration of, as, of God as he pounds the gavel of heaven, so to speak, and he declares the sinner righteous and thus not guilty, forgiven, because of the atoning finished work of Christ in his place. Okay? Conversion is the moment when God says, justified, not guilty, righteous, forgiven. Oh, that's great. We keep going there. Okay, but we gotta keep going, so I can't stop. Okay, so he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, he declares righteous, he declares not guilty, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Where's glorification fit up here? You're thinking that's that's tricky because we've got two left and there's only one in the text. I know, I know. Which fifty-fifty? <laughs> I mean, go for it. Right? <laughs> You're right, Rich. It's it's death, right? This is glorify. What does glorification mean? Glorification. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. You know the hymn? Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. That's glorification. Right now, we trust that God is up there and he's doing his thing and, and everything he says in his word is true. And we, we trust that because he says it, but we can't see him. Right? But there will be a day when we will see him. And when either we die and go to be with him or he returns, Scripture says at that moment, the war within will be done. The dead elephant on our back will be removed. And we will perfectly reflect Christ. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. But the day will come when we will know, even as we are known. We will right. know, of course, not perfectly, because we'll right. have a whole eternity to continue to learn. Right. But uh, it's really beautiful. It is. It is. Now, you say, well, <laughs> the, the point. The point of this text is, if God started this, He's going to do this. If God initiates here, He will follow through. Through glorification. That, uh, theologians call this, you know, the golden chain of salvation, right? And that's why he says in verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God's going to complete the work he started. Okay? Now, the one element that's, that's missing, <laughs> at least in this list, is our current life. And, and I'll show you that in a minute. But uh, flip, flip back to Philippians chapter... Go back to Philippians, because Paul talks about all of these in the book of Philippians. But uh, before we leave glorification, uh, look at Philippians chapter 3. And uh, this is one of my, my favorite glorification texts. Look at chapter 3, verse... Uh, let's pick it up in... Let's pick it up in 20, Okay. For our citizenship is in heaven. He's talking about now, right? He's saying right now we are citizens of heaven. We're not there yet, but we're citizens. 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. There it is, right? We're waiting for Christ to return. Either by, by death we go to be with him or he comes before then. Verse 21, what's he going to do when he shows up? Who will transform the body of our humble state. Underline it, highlight it, star it, circle it. Watch this. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. You remember, remember Romans 8? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Right? Same thing here. When Christ comes, he will take the body of our humble state, and by humble he just means uh, you know, we're broken, we're, we still have remaining sin, we're not perfect by any stretch, and he will take that and he will, it, it's like he, he, takes, he takes the current body, the current Keith, the current believer, and, and he puts it in the mold of Christ. And he does this amazing, miraculous, transforming work so that when he removes it from the mold, in glorification, it looks just like Christ. Um, the other way I picture that, it's the way Second Corinthians 3 pictures sanctification. We're, we're progressively changed from glory to glory until one day we perfectly reflect the character of Christ. We, we are, are broken image bearers now. We're image bearers, but we're broken image bearers. We're broken mirrors. We were made to reflect the glory of God, but we're sinful. So that light gets scattered all over the place and we don't look like God every day. But one day he will put us in glorification in the mold. He will fix the mirror. And as Christ radiates his character, we will reflect it out perfectly to the praise of his glory forever, eternally. That's glorification. Wow. What, what a day that will be. How does he do that? By the exertion of the power that he has. Only God has the power to do that. Yeah. Now, Philippians 3 comes after Philippians 2. Very good, class. All right, so back up to Philippians 2. Because the one area he didn't talk about in Romans 8 was our current life. And you know what? Can we just maybe huddle up and think about this? I don't know about you, there are days that I fight sin, that I am discouraged about sin, that it seems hopeless sometimes about sin, that you wonder, (laughs) really? I mean, really? Are you sure? And that's why, right out of the gate, he says... To these believers, I am confident. I'm confident that God's going to finish what he started. I'm confident that as discouraged as you may be, as struggling with sin as you you are, as the church is being persecuted, I'm in prison, you're discouraged, as bad as it looks, God will finish his work. So don't be discouraged. Be confident. Philippians. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 12 and 13. Uh, you guys know these verses. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. 
Now, when he says work out salvation, remember, he's not talking about this aspect of salvation. He's not talking about conversion. He's not talking about glorification. He's talking about work out your sanctification. That's what he's talking about. Work it out. Obey. Follow Christ. Stay it. Stay at it. Why? Verse 13. Because it's God who is at work in you. God is the one at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's, it's like Romans 8. God is using all things for your good in life to make you like Christ. He will complete that work. So our role is to work out our salvation. We keep at it. We put the flesh to death every day. We, we draw near to Christ. We, we make no provision for, for the flesh. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put off the old man. We put on the new. We seek him. We rely on him. And by his grace, we grow progressively till one day he completes the work. Um, and I think, I, I think that that's part of in reading between the lines, what we need to see here is that these Philippians weren't sure if this was going to happen. Who knows? Maybe they, were just, maybe they were having a particular battle with sin that day. Maybe they were discouraged that their hero, Paul, was in prison. Uh, maybe they heard about the persecution of Nero that was happening. I mean, who knows? But in some way they thought, is God really going to finish this thing? And Paul says, I'm in prison, but you know what? I'm joyful, I'm thankful when I think about you because I'm confident he's going to p- complete the work he started in you because God always finishes what he starts. All right? Put a comment in your notes. We'll talk more about sanctification next week. Quick question. Yes, yes, I sure will.